Welcome back to the final episode of Our Seven Neighbors, a new seven-episode podcast brought to you by the Interreligious Institute at Chicago Theological Seminary. My name is Kim Schultz, and I'm your host. Here we are. This is it, our final episode this season. Have you listened to all seven? We would love you to. Check them all out after listening to this one. Today's episode is focused on changing the narrative. The accepted narrative in this country regarding race and religion is powerful and often untrue and dangerous. Learning how to change that narrative is crucial to making any sustainable changes in this work. And so, we talked to some really amazing people for this episode. People who know a thing or two about changing narratives. I think you'll find this episode very useful. I know I did. Today's guests include Iranian-American artist Sarvan Hadidi, media and public relations consultant and Mexican-American Christian Ramos, and Zainab Chowdhury, a Muslim woman and founder of Megaphone Strategies, a social justice media relations firm. This is good stuff. Let's jump in. Sarvan Hadidi is an Iranian-American based in Chicago. She is also an amazing visual artist who does a lot of visualizing of love. We had a chance to talk with her about the Muslim ban and how that affected and continues to affect her life and art. Here's Sarvan. My name is Sarvan Hadidi. I'm Muslim. I'm Iranian. Iranian-American now. I just became a citizen last year. I was in the first wave of people who got stranded when the Muslim ban came into effect. Uh, I was in Australia visiting my family. I wasn't able to come back home, and I was in limbo for eight really stressful days. Uh, my husband, who's American, was back home in Chicago and was trying to see how he can find a way to bring me back home, which sounds really crazy, but as a green card holder back then, thankfully I'm a citizen now, I, I just couldn't come back. And my heart was broken, but... As Rumi says, you need to keep breaking your heart until it opens. And I just kept reminding myself that there's more love, you know, there's more good than bad in the world. And people were just overwhelmingly just inviting me to their homes and sending me beautiful text messages. And I got so much support and love that I was reminded I am on the right path, even with my art. And I need to continue what I'm doing. And I need to just share the love and culture through my art. And last year when I was pregnant with my son, I couldn't even imagine not having my parents here. Of course, because of Muslim ban, they cannot come even to visit us, which is which sounds awful, but that's the reality we're living in. So we decided to move to Australia for four months uh, so that I can give birth to my son and I can have my parents present financially and emotionally. As you can imagine, it was just a roller coaster for both of us, but and the bigger picture, it's definitely worth it. Because when I, when I saw my son in my parents' arms, that was just the most beautiful thing that I could that I could see at that moment. It just, it just, up to this day, warms my heart. Just thinking of that, and I couldn't be happier. This is just a reminder to every all of us, I think, that all these issues have faces. The Muslim ban is still there. There are still kids in cages, and now. We're facing with another major crisis. These issues, they all have faces. We all live together. We all live in the same country. But these issues, you don't, you don't feel related to them unless you know somebody or you see, you see it happening to somebody that you know or you're close with. 
I love Chicago and I love this country. I really do. I think it's it's a magnificent place. But uh, the fact that my parents cannot come here, it makes me, I don't feel it's my home, as sad as it sounds. <laughs> I can't have my mom here. And that's honestly, it's, it breaks my heart every time. Even now when I see my son and he's growing up and all we have, I mean, thankfully we have, we have technology and we can FaceTime and all that, but still for them not to be able to see my son, I think that's just, it's just heartbreaking. Every time we, we talk, they're just in tears and, and I, I don't see that change anytime soon, unfortunately, because I know that we are now dealing with bigger issues uh, and there's so many things that we need to fix before we get to that. My art is all about bridging the gap. I use Persian poetry, mostly Rumi, in my pieces and the places I exhibit. As an artist, I'm a strong believer in power of writing and affirmations. Uh, I strongly believe that once you put down a word on any surface, you're sending a message to the universe. By writing love over and over again in Farsi, in places that I exhibit and on my pieces as well, I try to create pieces that hopefully are not just visually interesting, but they start a dialogue, no matter where you come from, what religion you follow and what color your skin is. So more than ever, I think we need to come together and unite, give love without expectations. We need to really rethink humanity and what what it really means in terms of giving love to others and to our planet as well. I'm talking about love without expectations. I think it's, it will be fitting to use Hafez's quote that it says, even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look what happens with a love like that. It lights the whole sky. Power of love and strong messaging. Next up, I spoke with Christian Ramos about just that. Christian is a media and public relations consultant. We met on a very windy day in D.C. He shared a lot of best practices on messaging in these turbulent times. My name is Christian Ramos. I'm the communications director for Define American. Oh, yes, forgot to mention. Since this interview, Christian changed jobs. He left Define American to start his own small media and public relations consulting firm called Autonomy Strategies. Okay. Back to Christian. So what have you noticed, say, since 2016 and the shift of narratives in this country? Well, so what's interesting is I think the story of that actually is, is 20 years old. It's, it's beyond that. And I think 20 years ago, maybe even 50 years ago, going back to Richard Nixon, you had Roger Ailes had this sort of epiphany moment where he realized that the country was changing and there were people that were deeply uncomfortable with that. And so part of that narrative was a split, an us versus them. And as soon as he identified that group of people who were dissatisfied or not connected, he crafted narratives specifically for them about how white identity was something that was in the mainstream, was normal, and anything that challenged that was, was unacceptable. And a lot of it was in reaction to the election of Barack Obama, in which you had a black man who was president, you had a, you know, a, an improving economy, but there were people who were still very discontent about the changes that occurred in society. And so you had people 
like Steve Bannon, who sort of recognize this discontent, who sort of recognize what's going on with that, that narratives that Roger Ailes had started. And, you know, his epiphany was, well, they're not going far enough. <laughs> and so they, they sort of feed the beast with all of this digital content and, and this narrative of the country is changing and it's making everything worse. And what, what's interesting about that is things were not getting worse, but you're constantly hearing that. And so all they needed was like this thing to be the, the public face of that. That wasn't afraid to sort of engage in these white nationalist identity narratives. And, and they got Donald Trump. I would argue that the policies and, and even the way that they, they, they talk about this stuff is secondary to, to buttressing and reinforcing this narrative that there's an invasion occurring and that there's a scarcity of resources with our country. And the, the fall guy for that is, is typically immigrants and, and Muslims and, and people of color. So the average American, what is, what is the most important thing in your eyes in your work that the average American should be doing right now? I think it is having these tough conversations i i hate to say educate because this is a very emotional issue but but the 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 statistic or fact i love to always deploy in these conversations is most people who are anti-immigrant or anti-muslim have never met anybody who's an immigrant or is muslim and so these places in the country where you have this you know, spreading of, of xenophobia, for the lack of a better word. They've never had a, a meaningful interaction with an immigrant or somebody who's Muslim. And so I think that that's part of it, is take the time to like, learn about it, but also if you happen to meet somebody, have a conversation with them, have that discussion. It, it's really interesting in the work that we do, some of the research we've seen is, you know, Technology is connecting people and allowing people to tell stories in real time. But oftentimes it's doing that in the face of actual interactions or relationships with other human beings. And that does have an effect on society and I, I believe is directly related to people's inability to take the time to talk to somebody who may not have views that are exactly like theirs. What else are useful um, best practices or tools? They have a, anti-immigrant hate groups, anti-Muslim groups, have a very sophisticated network online. And a lot of people sort of characterize these groups as, as in sort of this like KKK mentality or uneducated groups of individuals. And what's fascinating to me is these groups, I think, understand the, the hive mind mentality of online communities better than anybody else. And in that regard, a lot of the work that they're doing, 4chan and Reddit and so on and so forth, is, is less like, is less centered in the let's be as racist as possible and more let's create a community of people who believe that they're disaffected by society because of people of color or because of whatever. And so it, it's that sense of community for this, 
these groups of people who don't feel like they have a voice in society that is sort of the draw and less so of let's get people together to be racist. Trump is, is found out to have said whatever number of lies per day that, that he says. And so the lies become the truth. And how do we, in your experience, how, how can we best counter the lies? Yeah, so a lot of it is storytelling, I think. I, I, you know, it's interesting. People are willing to li- uh, believe a lie if it's persuasive, if it is rooted in an emotional feeling that they already have. And so this is something where I think <laughs> progressive narratives and conservative narratives are wildly different. Progressive narratives tend to make you feel bad about what you're doing. Conservative narratives are always rooted in making you feel good, that you're the hero, you're the one that's going to solve this in a way that is very simple and also a way that I don't think progressives really approach these media narratives, right? There's a problem, and the problem is that you're selfish because you're using plastic bottles, throwing the plastic bottles in the ocean, and the environment is, is to blame. And conservatives are very much like, if you like plastic bottles, you should use plastic bottles. And that's great. We get it. And so it's a similar thing, I think, within these narratives about race and identity. Conservatives have a very simple narrative about race and identity. It's not a good one, but it's simple, right? It's a very simple thing, right? Uh, uh, homogeneity is a good thing, right? People being the same is a good thing, and, and America is great and unique because we're all the same. Uh, progressives, it's tortured. It's a very tortured conversation about race uh, in America with progressives. And again, I, I, conservatives are very, their narratives, there's their hero, and the hero is you, and progressives, you're part of the problem. So I, I think it is bridging that, that gap of finding a way to talk about these things in a way that is more positive. I think it's simplicity. I think it, you know a lot of the work that we've done after 2016 was talking to marketers and people who do these campaigns for for products or whatnot one of the things that they said which 110 percent when they told me i was like this is so obvious you know it has to be true they said if you are selling something to somebody you can never take the group of people you want to sell it to and make them the secondary character in somebody else's story. And that's doubly true for Americans. Americans always want to be the hero of the stories that they're in. They never want to be the bad guy. So if you're trying to sell something to Americans, they're the hero, they're the main focus, and that's it. And so a lot of what we've seen conservatives do well is the American is the hero, the American is the primary character. If you're looking at progressive narratives, it's generally not the case. And so if we're solving for that equation, it is finding a way to present true equality and an integration of both viewpoints. I, I don't think what's occurring really has as much to do with the president as he would like to give himself credit 
I think he just tapped into a lot of stuff that's always been there. And, you know, it's my hope that we get this out of our system and, and, and move on. And finally, after listening to both the segments you just did, Dr. Rachel Mikva, a faculty member at Chicago Theological Seminary, had a very interesting conversation with Zeneb Chaudhry, a Muslim-American woman who is founder of Megaphone Strategies. Megaphone is a social justice media strategy firm for nonprofit organizations looking to build a better world. They had a great conversation on how to change the narrative around Islamophobia, xenophobia, and racism. Sidebar. This was recorded before the current righteous racial protest began in the United States. Hi, this is Rachel Mikva. I'm delighted to have with me as my conversation partner, Zeneb Chowdhury, who works in social justice media relations and has taught me a great deal about how to do some of this work. We know each other back when she was at Rethink Media. Welcome, Zeneb. Thank you so much, Rachel. I'm so happy to be talking to you. So... This episode of Our Seven Neighbors is entitled Changing the Narrative. So I'd love for you to reflect with me a little bit about how you'd characterize the current narrative about Muslims in the United States. It's actually really an exciting time, I think, or it has been an exciting time. So as you mentioned, I used to work for Rethink Media back when you and I first met. And we did, we, we do a lot of sort of coalition-based support for organizations that are working on moving particular issues. And we built communications capacity for particularly the anti, the, the, the group of people who are fighting and combating anti-Muslim bigotry. And we were a very sort of data-driven and research-based in the ways that we wanted to approach this particular topic. And so while I was at Rethink, we conducted some message testing research. And because I'm a huge social psychology nerd, um, we <laughs> talked a lot about sort of language and linguistics and, and how the words that we choose really matter when it comes to shifting people's perceptions. I really remember being blown away by some of the data in terms yeah. of, you know, a lot of the social change work and movement building that I've been doing is really focused about analyzing the problem and showing mm -hmm. people the problem. And, and I, I just remember being taught, you know, this is the way people respond to that versus leading with values and a positive and aspirational message. I was like, oh, well, that makes perfect sense. And I, I think more than that, it was the way in which we analyzed the data and the ways in which we thought out nuance in the research. Mm -hmm. I think that's really, really key because it's, I mean, I'm, I'm Muslim American myself, obviously. And I can tell you from my experience, what's been sort of frustrating for, for so many years is we've been trying to change the narrative around ourselves since 9-11. And a lot of that has been working with PR firms that I think also did message testing research, which basically came back with the same thing over and over again, which was talk about how American you are. And there was not a lot of nuance to that. And it it felt a little bit like this sort of blunt, non-specific instrument that we were given. And I think in the process, it caused a lot of damage to to the movement because it made us water down our identities. It made us shameful of our identities. It made a lot of young people who grew up in the shadow of 9-11 
sort of ashamed of, of who they were and the faith that they practiced, which was completely counter to, you know, what, what we had wanted to achieve. And I think with our message testing research, when we found data points like that, we were able to sort of sit down and say, okay, what does this actually mean? I was thinking back on something that Christian said in his interview that I found very striking, and I'm sure you have deeper insight into it. He talked about that conservatives frequently tell stories where you, the listener, you're the hero, Mm -hmm. and progressives always tell their stories and make their case by telling their listeners they're part of the problem. (laughs) So, (laughs) um, I mean, there was a compelling insight in there, but I wanted to see what you thought. I will say that conservatives are very good at using messaging techniques that people learn very quickly. So it's interesting, actually, because some of the social psychology that comes into how we change people's minds has a lot to do with how they're hearing what you're saying. When people are able to quickly understand a concept, it releases dopamine in the brain. And dopamine is something that makes you feel happy. It makes you feel accomplished. And it's a feeling that you want again, which means for you as a communicator, that if you're able to convey something to someone quickly and they understand it quickly, they will not only retain it, they will also repeat it. And that is what we want people to do. That dopamine hit is incredibly powerful. And so if we're able to, you know, for example, use a metaphor that people understand very quickly, or if we're able to use sort of simple phrases, then that achieves that goal. But if we convey to people that they don't understand or that they're part of the problem, we're actually turning people off. And not only are they not getting that dopamine hit, they're getting the opposite of that, which is feeling like they don't understand the concept, feeling frustrated, and then automatically disagreeing with it. I think sometimes as progressives, we fall into this very narrative, uh, very complicated narrative. So I call it um, social justice word salad. And I know a lot of folks who do this, which is, I always give this example, you know, we talk a lot about dismantling systemic oppression for our mutual liberation. That's actually a phrase that I've heard before. I have no idea what that means. And if I have no idea what this means as someone who's entrenched in this space, I can guarantee that, that you know, most folks don't know what it means either. Oh, come what on. You, you know what it means. It just doesn't move you. It just doesn't move me, right? It, it doesn't elicit the sort of compassionate response that will actually move me to action. But for a lot of people, it also goes over their heads, you know? Right. And, and so instead of using words like these to really describe it, to be very sort of visual with your words and say, we have these systems in place that hold people back. And it's like if they're running a race and they're handicapped from the start, you know, and in order for them to be truly on equal terms, we have to get rid of these these obstacles that hold them back. That's a much more visual representation of what I'm trying to convey. We need to be visual with our words because that's what elicits feeling. That's what gets people to understand. Sarvin's story was, of course, very powerful moving because it's personal and I know her and, and there is the power of storytelling, but there is that nuance that you've spoken about before about in terms of thinking about empathy versus compassion, right? Mm -hmm. What actually moves you enough to, to be ready to partner for change? Yes. And I think, I, I really think that sometimes 
you know, one of the things that we say a lot about uh, sort of Muslims and immigrants is, oh, you know, people who have these impressions of them, it's just because they don't personally know someone who's Muslim or they don't personally know someone who's an immigrant, right? And I don't think that that's as compelling as people think it is because it's very easy to get to know someone and empathize with them. But empathy only gets us to a place where a person understands you. It doesn't get us to a place where a person is moved to act on your behalf. Right. What gets a person to move to act on your behalf is compassion. And I think that's the next level. So perhaps empathy is the first level. Because, I mean, the other thing we've seen people do is they make exceptions for the people they know, but they don't make exceptions for an entire group of people based on the person they know, right? So they could know a Muslim and know a Muslim very well and say, well, this particular Muslim is a great person, but I don't know about those other people over there. Right. Well, all through Jewish history, there were always the exceptional Jews who were accepted into society when the rest weren't. Yeah, exactly. And that's why we want to be also very careful of sort of the model minority um, right. mythology around, well, you know, Muslims come here and there are doctors and they're, they're lawyers, they give back to society. I think that's a little dangerous. I think, you know, what connects people more so, what creates more compassion is if you're a parent and you see a parent who's struggling, if you're someone who is just fighting for dignity, I think like the concept of dignity, it really reaches across the board, across a bunch of different identities. So if you're a person in rural America who is waitressing for a living and you just want to be treated with some dignity and respect, you share that with the African-American man who just wants to be able to walk down the street without being arrested or the Muslim woman with the headscarf who wants to be treated with dignity and respect instead of spat upon. I think that those concepts and the things that make us think of those concepts for others because we think of them for ourselves, they go a long way towards creating compassion for other people, which allows us to then move on their behalf. Sarvin made a brief reference to shelter-in-place orders um, because this has been recorded during the coronavirus pandemic. Mm -hmm. I I wonder if there's a particular way you think this current moment shapes the work. I think for sure. So it's funny that this current moment comes after impeachment, which was a very (laughs) um, different moment. Impeachment was such an interesting exercise in seeing how we live in two parallel worlds in this country right now. If you were just watching the pure footage of the impeachment hearings themselves, it seemed completely nonsensical the ways the ways in which the Republican Party <laughs> was speaking about, about the president, about the hearings. But if you then later watched Fox News versus MSNBC, what you realized is that those Republicans were speaking in news clips for Fox News that night. And essentially, the two news outlets were showing completely different sort of alternate realities of the impeachment hearings. And I think that what shelter in place and COVID-19, as terrible as it is, has actually done is is challenged a lot of that. And we know this because they tried to do the parallel universe thing again uh, at the beginning of the, the, the pandemic when they, you know, insisted that this is a hoax, this is a democratic hoax, 
but a virus doesn't follow your narrative. <laughs> so, um, you know, when, when people started to actually really be impacted on this, by this on every level, and I would say the Fox News viewership probably more than anybody else because they tend to be older folks, you just couldn't deny that, that this is happening. There was no wiggle room. It's really challenging the idea of American exceptionalism, and it's challenging this sort of rugged individualism idea of America because we need to rely on others. Otherwise, we can't get through this. And I think as a country more and more, we've stepped away from relying on each other, and this is sort of forcing us to do it. I also just feel like there's no going back from this to the world we lived in before. I think we were very comfortable with the world we were in before. And I think Donald Trump's presidency, if it's taught us anything, has taught us that we, the sort of social contract we had in place that made us think our democracy was infallible really relies on people. And it can very easily be broken. And I think that the virus has sort of hit that home in an even bigger way. I am most curious to see what the world looks like after we're through this and on the other side, because I think there are just things that will not exist anymore. And I think that there are concepts that people have about who we are as Americans that will have drastically shifted by the end of this. Well, thanks so much, Zeneb, for joining us. It's been a treat talking with you. It's been wonderful talking to you too. This is really great. And that's it. Finito. Our first season is complete. Thank you for joining us. We hope these discussions and stories have been useful to you. It is up to all of us to educate ourselves and then hopefully help educate others in this work. We are at a crucial moment and all of us are needed to step into the fray to help make this world more equitable and inclusive for all. This is our neighborhood, not just yours, not just mine. Thanks for taking the time to meet your neighbors. For more on our guests, Sarvan, Christian, and Zeynep, check out our website, our7neighbors.com, where you will find full show notes and all the appropriate links. And learn more about Chicago Theological Seminary at ctschicago.edu. Like this podcast? Think someone else might? Share it on social media or personally in your communities. Your own conversations will help further the larger conversation on justice for all. Find us at our7neighbors.com. The Interreligious Institute at Chicago Theological Seminary has been so grateful to spend this time with you. We hope to be back with you for another season in the fall. So stay tuned, and in the meantime, stay active. And thanks for listening to Our Seven Neighbors. Take care.